Welcome to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. This is your host, Doug Irwin. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Matt Norby, the founder and managing partner of Flume Ventures based in Incline Village. Matt is a remarkable human and has a really interesting career trajectory. He was a young executive at Sun Microsystems in early 2000s. He went on to launch a company, which he later sold, and then he became president for Playboy Enterprises. That led him to found Flume Ventures. Flume is a non-traditional venture fund that really focuses on investing in the right founders, regardless of stage or geographic location. They have a, a little bit of a bent towards enterprise software, which is not surprising given some of the tech luminaries that are in their LP base, including Scott McNeely from Sun and David Dutfield from PeopleSoft and Workday. He does all this great work along with his general partner, Colin D'Elia. And one of the great things about this fund is they're reinvesting in the Nevada ecosystem. A percentage of their profits will go back to supporting the broad ecosystem. If you want an opportunity to meet Matt, you can meet him at the Reno Startup Week on September 27th. He'll be on a venture panel. Otherwise, enjoy the program. And now on with the podcast. Matt, welcome to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. It's good to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you making the drive down from Incline to talk with me today. Enjoy it. Yeah. So, Matt Norby, you're the founder and manager of Flume Ventures. We're going to dive into that. But before we get into that, kind of give us a little bit of background. Like, how did you, you have a really interesting career path. Like, how did you end up from tech to entertainment to all those things? Kind of give us a little bit of a background so we get yeah. some more information. Yeah, look, it wasn't a straight line. So, I grew up in the Midwest in Indianapolis, Indiana. Spent 18 years of my life there and wanted to go down to some Southern schools. So I looked at all the Southern schools and decided on Auburn University, which was wonderful. Got indoctrinated into the South. Didn't realize they called us Yankees, but apparently I knew that that was a thing after my first couple of days on campus there. So I had a great experience at Auburn. And out of school, I was fortunate enough to be hooked up with uh, Sun Microsystems, which for those of you who remember, Sun was the original infrastructure that built. They were the dot and dot com, if you will. This is around 2000, 2001. And they hired me in their executive development program called the Bob Program, which was short for best of the best, which uh, I was fortunate enough to be hired, one of 15 people. Not sure how I got through that process because I definitely was a 3.0 student, not a 4.0 student and had a lot of fun in college, but got hooked up with Sun and didn't know you weren't supposed to call the CEO. So at the time, there's this prolific guy in Silicon Valley named Scott McNeely, and nobody told me you weren't supposed to call him to go on sales calls with you. So my first year, I called the CEO's assistant, and she was crazy enough to book me on his calendar, and that's where our relationship started, which we can talk more about in a little bit. But started my career at Sun. Probably the most emotional day in my career was I'd been promoted to run a large organization in the Midwest and advanced beyond my wildest dreams being just a, a young kid from Indiana. And I decided to go leave with uh, the president of sales at Sun to do a company called Greenplum. And it didn't have a website at the time. And it just secured some some funding, but the future wasn't locked up. It wasn't like we had buckets of capital. So I, I left and did that and spent some time in building Greenplum, which we can spend some time talking about. And then from there, went and took a career turn after we had sold Greenplum to EMC, which is now Dell, and was recruited by Hugh Hefner to help with what he thought was a digital turnaround at Playboy, where he wanted somebody that had that background and that expertise. And I was friendly with the CEO that had replaced Christy Hefner, who's still a dear friend. And that CEO brought me in to to help and very clearly realized it was a brand. It wasn't a digital first play and started getting into brand licensing and consumer. And then that led me to a moment of spending more time in Incline Village where we'd had a vacation home since 2011 
and decided after I got married during my tenure at Playboy and started having kids that what better community and what better state than Nevada to raise a family. And so that's where I found myself. And that sort of brought the arrival of, hey, there's a lot of really smart people that are legends in tech, legends in business that live in this tiny little town with less than 10,000 people. Let's put them to work and let's figure out how to go find the next founders, the next Scott McNeely's, the next Dave Duffield's, the next Larry Ellison's of the world, all these really incredible people. Wouldn't it be great to figure out if we could put an operating group together uh, based in Nevada for Nevada, obviously investing on a more global horizon than the state? And so we did that. And so I founded Flume Ventures with Scott McNeely, who's now an operating partner, Imran Khan, who's most famous for Snap. And was fortunate enough and honored enough to have Dave Delfield's support and backing in that, who's just a legend in the industry, founder of Workday and PeopleSoft and a handful of other really good inclined folks. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I can see why you're you're now part of the Nevada Bob, right? The Nevada Best the Best. It seems <laughs> pretty obvious. I mean, good making good choices, you know, moving to incline and then of course seeing the potential of the state just speaks to your your acumen. What an interesting career. I mean, so you started in tech and kind of moved into shaming. One of the things we were talking a little bit before is like the importance of really having that operational experience. I mean, obviously, I want to dive into Flume Ventures, but what were some of the key lessons that you learned? I mean, the sun at that time was really interesting. I mean, I was in the Valley then, worked for a company called Brio, and we did a lot of stuff with Sun. But I mean, that, that is such a classic Valley company. I'm curious, what were some of the things that you've taken from those early tech experiences? Yeah, so I think at Sun, I learned the importance of culture. I think when you had a dress code that was, you must, that was a pretty liberal dress code, given that was Sun's HR policy on dressing, was that you must. And at that time, you'd go in and do sales calls, and you'd have 10 guys in, in blue suits trying to, you know, you got the product specialist and the associate product specialist and everybody else from IBM trying to outflank you. And we'd go in, and we'd be lucky to have a system engineer next to us, and we'd be wearing blue jeans and a golf shirt. And uh, we'd go in, and sun was kicking butt, and our motto was kick butt and have fun. That was Scott's thing. So I learned a lot about culture. I learned yeah. a lot about building teams. Sun's forever shaped the valley. I mean, if you think about guys like Satya Nadala running Microsoft, who I greatly admire, he grew up at Sun. Eric Schmidt at Google grew up at Sun Microsystems. And so I think you're judged later in life. And as I sort of turn the corner now, nearing 44, I look back and I think the proud moments are the people that you invested time behind. And I think the legacy of Scott McNeely and Sun Microsystems is forever etched in lore in Silicon Valley because, man, there's a lot of great talent that comes out. I just saw a stat, uh, Doug, that said you're three and a half times more likely to be a founder of a unicorn company if you worked at Sun Microsystems. So I think that just shows how prolific and how culturally imperative Sun Microsystems was to the Valley. Absolutely. I mean, I just think about, you know, I'm a recovering computer engineering, but JavaScript, I mean, JavaScript powers the internet, basically. And at that time, they were competing with the Microsoft technology, but it's undeniable the impact that it's had. I love that stat. I mean, it seems like you could probably build a investment thesis just on going after former Sun employees. You'd be shocked to learn how many inbounds we get on a daily basis from LinkedIn and other sources relative to people that worked at Sun. And look, we return every single email and we meet with as many people as we can because that, that's a community and a, a fraternity and sorority, if you will, of wonderful people. Yeah. It must have been interesting to leave Sun at that time and then go start a new company. I mean, what were some of the things that kind of led you to that or what some of the things you learned from that experience? Yeah, it's a good question. I questioned my sanity at some point because I was having so much fun at Sun, but it was an emotional moment. I actually remember... You know, I can share this with your listeners. I remember tears in my eyes as I was walking. I was based in Chicago, walking out of that Chicago office for the last time at Sun. It just meant that much to me. 
that handing back that badge was a really difficult decision, particularly when you know, I was 25, 26 years old and you live in Chicago and you're doing well. You know, you're, it's different than living in New York or Singapore. It doesn't take a whole lot to be happy in Chicago financially and so forth. But I realized there was an instrumental individual that ran sales at Sony. He was the president of the Americas and he had been recruited by a company called Green Plum to really professionalize the business. And I'm a big believer, and I still am, on you follow people. And there was just something about this individual. He's gone on to do great things. His name is Bill Cook. And he called and he said, you know, I think it's time for you to come and do a startup. And so Bill and the founders of the company aggressively recruited me along with a couple of venture capitalists. And I found myself with a company that didn't really have a website propped up. And I had gone from this Fortune 120 company to this company that barely had a website. And I realized I was trying to get meetings with database administrators eating really bad Chinese food in basements of data centers just to try and get some time where before I was leading a team in to meet with the CIO and, in some cases, CFOs of these major corporations, given what I had on my business card at Sun. So very humbling, for sure. Yeah, no, those are good experiences, though. I mean, I think that helps ground you to that. So you went through – did you go through the kind of whole life cycle of that from early startup through – was it acquired or – yeah, so I, I came in what would say the early phase. I would say it was, you know, shoestring and bubblegum holding it together, right? We had a couple customers, but really customers in the early days, as I'm sure some of your founders can relate to, or you have people that are trying a POC with the hope to get some sort of services revenue from that POC. And we ended up as a team, and we just assembled a great team. And it was a handful of sun guys that came together, and we just had a great culture. And we ended up building the business to 20-plus million of recurring revenue, and we had got NASDAQ and FINRA and New York Stock Exchange to take our technology. And we became a, not a rip and replace of Oracle, but we became a viable portion of the data warehouse movement, what they called big data back when that really wasn't a term. And we became sort of a big sandbox to do petabytes of data. And we were doing that without being dependent on one specific hardware. I think Teradata is probably the best known in the industry at that time. We would call those the mainframe. So essentially, we took what we learned at Sun is let's go open systems and go and disrupt the industry like Sun did and open systems with the mainframe. We did the exact same thing. We applied it to data warehousing and multi-parallel processing transactions. And so it was a wonderful experience. I learned a lot, but I can tell you it was humbling. And anybody out there that says they've got it all figured out, series A, B, C, D, there is no escape velocity here. It is every day. I always say I lived in constant paranoia and I still have a little bit of that in me. It gives you a little bit of an edge, but it's humbling for sure. No, I I just, you know, it's funny you mentioned that just because that edge and that paranoia, I was just having lunch with a local founder who's on the front of a rocket ship. And it's just, it's a difficult experience to be the the founder of a high growth tech company. I mean, it is just always something different. It's until things stabilize, there's always an existential risk around the corner. That wears it. I bet it doesn't go away very easily, even after you're out of that. Yeah, I think that's right. I don't ever have nightmares about my CEO experience, but I definitely have that little bit of paranoia. I agree. I think it has that edge. So, so then you made like a pretty radical turn, right? I mean, you went from tech to Playboy magazine. How did that <laughs> come together? Yeah, I mean, I guess once you put it like that, it wasn't as linear as I thought it to be looking back on it. You know, it was really interesting. So I was close with a gentleman also from Indianapolis who had been appointed as a media executive, a gentleman by the name of Scott Flanders. He's also an important part of Flume. So this all sort of, my career all comes together now to Flume, which we'll get to in a minute. So Scott Flanders, he was chairman, CEO of Columbia House, and then went on to do some great things in the publishing space. If you guys remember the Idiot's Guides, which was the Comp to the Dummies books, that was Scott at Macmillan Publishing, which he sold to Simon Schuster. So Really impressive guy. He had always tracked my career. 
And here I was having taken this risk of leaving a very comfortable position at Sun Microsystems, which at the time looked invincible. That would be like being an executive at a Google today or a Meta or pick your big tech company that you'd want to be. Probably NVIDIA would be a good example to use today. And leaving that for the comforts, leaving the comforts of that for something that much higher risk, I think that was really for him wow, this guy is really able to transform businesses and take on the level of risk necessary. So he put it in my mind and I didn't even know what I would go do at Playboy. What do you, yeah, he just said, I need business talent, Matt. So I went and I met with Hef and everyone else. And as a guy from Indiana with both grandfathers, United Methodist ministers, I always joke that my career path would either have been in the ministry or running Playboy, but I didn't know which path it was going to take. And I can tell you, given I don't drink or smoke or do anything fun, I was the least likely guy to go be the president at Playboy. But that's what ended up happening. And again, it challenged me to, again, reinvent myself. And I think anybody on their founder journey, when they started a large company like I did at Sun, you need to reinvent yourself. And it's a big slice of humble pie to do a startup. Because yeah. everyone reads about the startups that reach escape velocity. And everyone celebrates, well, of course, you're a unicorn. They don't realize the work and the risk that oh, goes yeah. into that. And nobody talks about the 99% that aren't, yeah. right? And so having done Playboy, it really challenged me to reinvent myself. And I thought I was going there to help with a digital turnaround because I was obviously at a background in technology. But once I got there, it was very obvious the cash cow that had been untapped was licensing the rabbit head designed logo and going and creating other brands. So suddenly I found myself flying to Asia and teaching myself licensing on the fly. And Playboy is the third largest brand in Asia. I think it's the second largest brand in China behind the MBA from a licensing perspective. It's a publicly traded company now, like most companies that went through the SPAC process, they've had their bumps in the road and so forth. But I'm really proud of of what the team did. And I was really humbled to have the opportunity to really go and transform myself. And I sort of joke, all of my tech buddies were calling me, hey, can I meet with your CIO at Playboy? I didn't even know who the CIO was at Playboy. It was, it went through this world of tech where everybody was, the life was the CIO. And now I was running a business and I was focused on going and generating revenue and and really building that business. So a lot of fun. I think what you said is so profound about having to reinvent yourself with each one of these things. But I've got to imagine, I mean, just very different cultures. Right? I mean, you have a tech-focused culture versus just an entertainment-focused culture. I'm sure that there was lots of differences and things to be learned from each one of those. Yeah, I think that's right. I actually think you and I would not have met had I not done the Playboy job. And here's why. When you get into a career that's in the spotlight like that, I found coming to a place like Incline Village as aspirin for the headache of life. And people may be listening now say, oh, woe is me. This guy was running Playboy. He's living most, most men's dreams. And for me, I actually found it quite lonely. And the reason I say that is, and I think a lot of people can identify with this, when you're in a leadership position of particularly a company that required a turnaround, I found that everybody wanted an invite to the mansion party. I found that everybody in L.A. wanted access to me as a result of needing access to the mansion or needing access to celebrities or needing access to beautiful women or needing access to whatever it is they craved. And I didn't find authentic relationships Mm. 
outside of the tight circle that I had there at the time. So I found Incline Village as a place that I started vacationing when I was a bachelor, before I even got married, and then found it to be a refuge for the Hollywood scene, which I was decidedly not, I wanted to be an outsider of that. That was not a scene I identified with. Yeah, wow. I appreciate you sharing that. I mean, any leader or definitely any CEO of a high growth company will test to the loneliness. I mean, I, I think, again, having conversation with a good friend of mine the other day, the importance for entrepreneurs in having trusted advisors, either through something like YPO, EO, or even coaches or, or whomever, just because it can be so lonely at the top. And it's challenging. And who do you talk to about those things that you can't necessarily talk to your spouse about or your employees about? I, I think you're, you're right on. And I I guess it would, seems like it would be even amplified in that situation where you have the keys to something that's very coveted for a lot of people. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. And it sort of trained me in my life to keep my inner circle tight. And I identify authentic relationships. I would have been a horrible banker, right? Because bankers are taught to be transactional, right? And they may make a lot of money, but what an empty life for at least my personality, because I'm incapable of having transactional relationships. And I think the Playboy experience really amplified that of building authentic relationships, identifying opportunities where you can truly add value and really not be in a transactional lifestyle. And I think, unfortunately, when you live in LA, much like in banking and other industries, it's very transactional and they very much want you or need you for something that's for their own self-gain or self-promotion. Yeah. You and I see alignment on this one. I'm very much a relational person and I don't have a lot of space for transactional relationships. I mean, it, I, again, it's so interesting because I was such an ample, it was so, I'm sure, under the spotlight. But that opened up this opportunity, this refuge, gave you some insight into what was possible in Incline. I mean, did you start to develop good relationships in Incline? Is that how you kind of got grounded here? Or? Turns out in Incline Village, there's a lot of people that come there to be able to spend quality time with their family and their loved ones. And in the case of some of the individuals that are high profile there, they may be in the Bay Area and, and maybe in the limelight there. And it's just a, it's a different pace there. But I found the people to be authentic. I found yeah. the people to be accomplished. And I'm really proud to raise my kids there. I think it's a really incredible community. I, by the way, I think the state of Nevada in general, this isn't just an Incline Village conversation. I think the state of Nevada opened up to me. And I developed a real passion for the state of Nevada, which I know you share, Doug. And the reason is, in California, Gavin Newsom is not going to take my phone call, and I'm not sure I'd have much to say right now to him based on where, where that state's headed. And you know, I don't mean that disparagingly. I just look at Nevada as the land of opportunity. And as I think about more and more, we're in a position where we have just over 3 million people in the state. We can make a massive impact. Yeah. And the more I think about it and the more I see entrepreneurs moving here, there's a ripe opportunity for this state to be a leader in tech and business. And that motivates me and excites me because it's a tangible goal. Yeah. I mean, I'm over here just vibrating with the excitement because this is like 10, 12 years ago. I either thought I was crazy or I had some insight, right? And I thought Reno's underrated. Nevada's underrated. People don't see what I see. And, you know, again, I thought maybe I'm crazy, but it does seem like that's coming to fruition now. We have all these, this amazing movement. But also to your point, I mean, I had the Secretary of State on the podcast like a couple of days ago and the governor and the mayor, they're like real Nevadans, All their stories were like, I tried to do something in government and it didn't work out, so I decided to run. I mean, that's pretty much the common thing. So the fact that those folks are here available and making that change, and they're just good Nevadans trying to make Nevada better. I mean, that's just really exciting. Yep. Not career politicians. It feels like we can do stuff in Nevada. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. 
This last session, we passed AB 77, which is the first right to start act. It creates an office of entrepreneurship inside the governor's office, effectively just to look at the measurements of entrepreneurial success. But we're the first state to get that accomplished. And it's largely because a lot of people just put their arms together and said, hey, look, this is good. It was bipartisan. And it was reasonably easy relative to other things. So I keep coming up against opportunity for us to do great things in Nevada. And it's one of the reasons why when I first met you, I thought, oh, wow, I love the thesis behind Flume Ventures and what you're doing. So let's segue into that. So tell us a little bit about Flume because it's not your traditional venture fund. No, it's not. Decidedly not a traditional venture fund. So as I started looking back on my career and all the people that helped me along the way, I didn't take that for granted. I really feel blessed to have been in that position to to not know that you weren't supposed to call Scott McNeely to go on a sales call when you're 22 years old or to not know that your goals didn't have such limitations. And so, you know, as I started talking to some folks about the state of Nevada and I started talking to some folks about venture, I distinctly remember at Greenplum, what venture capitalists helped us. And let me define help, because a lot of venture capitalists talk about value add. Value add to me is calling people that could cause business to happen and transferring some value exchange across that struggling company just trying to get new logos and get some ARR revenue, depending on what business they're in. And I remember the venture capitalists vividly. And the moment I got money from the Greenplum transaction, I invested in one, a venture capital firm called Bold Start, early stage, run by a guy named Ed Sim, salt of the earth, one of the Midas guys now. He's come a long way. I remember meeting him in the basement of Radio City Music Hall when he was running a company called Don Trader. But he was an early believer in Greenplum. And bigger than that, Doug, he was a believer that if he could invest his relationships and his network into causing business to happen, that talent would start showing up at Greenplum to transform and grow that business faster than the spreadsheets that the guys out in Silicon Valley had put together for the business. And so I saw the outliers of what venture capital value add could be. And I said, you know, I want to go create that. And so what if we could create a group of operators? So my help, there's no institutional capital in Flume Ventures. I think it's very important to note. I decidedly went out to a group of CEOs, founders, and operators, people that are at the top of their profession, and said, we're building this. Oh, and by the way, we're going to take 10% of my profits, not your profits, investor, of my profits, the general partnership's profits, and reinvest that in the state of Nevada to create an ecosystem that this state deserves to have beyond the gaming industry and beyond the hospitality industry. And we're going to build a proper enterprise tech community in Nevada with the profits, because that's where my heart and my passion is. And if you have a heart and passion for that, come on board. Wow. And so in our LP base, you know, I mentioned earlier, it's public in a Bloomberg article. I was humbled and honored enough to earn Dave Duffield's trust. For those of you listening that don't know Dave, you can celebrate his time founding PeopleSoft and Workday, and it would be easy to stop there because those are major accomplishments. And I can't think of people in Silicon Valley, and I'm I'm next to one day to day. And Scott McNeely, who reminded me out maybe outside of Steve Jobs, there's not a lot of people that go back for an encore. Yeah. And so Dave built PeopleSoft, and then went on to build Workday. And for you Nevadans listening out there, you probably know he's built a third company in his early 
80s, very young early 80s, I may add, called Ridgeline, which is revolutionizing the investment management business. And if you think about the thesis of Workday for a minute, right, this is just, this is what it takes to be a great founder. Think about walking in to an HR team and saying, give me your most valuable employee data, and I'm going to go put that in the cloud. Hmm. Think about that. Yeah, not going to be happy about that. <laughs> okay. Well, that worked. And that was the vision of Dave Duffield and his partner, Anil, who still runs the company today. And that takes a lot of gumption. That takes a lot of vision and a lot of hard work. And he's doing the same with Ridgeline today. I think the financial services industry has not adopted a lot of new technologies. There's a lot of people that like to build versus buy there. And I think what you're seeing being built right in our backyard here in Northern Nevada of Ridgeline is going to be another, his third success story or what I'll call his hat trick. But bigger than all those corporate contributions and something I have a heart for is, you know, he's building in DeMonte Ranch here, Liberty Dogs, is going to be a state-of-the-art facility. He's partnered with a local developer, wonderful man, Perry DiLoretto, does a lot for the community as well. And he's building a community to essentially have veterans from war come back and be paired with an emotional support animal that's highly trained to these soldiers' every needs. Mm. And when you think about that, and you think about that level of commitment and his heart for veterans and his heart for animals. He's one of the largest contributors with Maddie's Fund to pet charities and so yeah. forth. I admire him as an entrepreneur, but I admire him a lot more as a human being and, and what he's done for our great state. And I, he stays under the radar by design. He'd probably be blushing by me saying all these great things about him, but I just think it's wonderful. And so if we can create more Dave Duffields, and I realize that's a tall order because there's only he's a one of a kind, but I'd love to go find founders that are good, high character people that that I know once they're successful and we declare victory on the professional front, they'll go be a Dave Duffield and go help and support the communities they're in. And if that's in Nevada, then all the better. I agree. And I think you're really tapping into that from an economic development standpoint. Like, we're really trying to create that flywheel, right? And it all starts with great people. I mean, an early part of our strategy is like, we have to have great jobs here to drive people. But ultimately, in the entrepreneurial world, we have to have great founders. And the hope is we have great founders that have great success. And that breeds a whole nother round of founders. And that and that flywheel continues. And we're only 10 years into this process, which that's still pretty early in, in, in relative terms. It feels like a long time sometimes, but... Liberty Dogs is being developed in, in South Reno. And I think that's just going to be a great temple for other great things happening in our community and other great philanthropists coming forward and doing great things in the yeah. community. And you know, my brother's a veteran. I, I work with actually quite a few first responders and veterans. There's actually a reasonably large contingent of Navy SEALs that are that are amazing individuals. If you've ever you know, met with them, also some venture folks. And just recognizing all that is not being done for those folks and all the opportunity to do that. In fact, I'm moderating a panel with a group of veterans in October. And so I just, I'm loving to see those intersectionalities, right? Like, because as, you know, it's great entrepreneurship's a component of the community, but, you know, we really need to support everybody in the community. And I love the second and third order effects. Absolutely. So Dave was a early supporter and enthusiastic supporter and consider him a close friend and very blessed to know him. The other was fairly obvious to me is as I was looking to my left and right of who do I want to build a dream team of partners in Flume. And I called that same guy I called when I was 22. I'm 44 now. So that should tell you how long we've known each other. And I said, Scott, I got a crazy idea, but it's going to require you to come out of retirement a little bit here. And 
And he loved it. I was actually surprised the enthusiasm. So Scott's both an LP and a part of our GP here and is just wonderful. His network is one of a kind. You know, we had a founder just recently that was struggling to unlock a relationship in Japan and not too many partners can just shoot a note over to Masa-san and say, hey, Masa, can you help this guy? And a similar situation with a founder that needed better access to Microsoft and you just put Satya in an email and it's super humbling to be a relatively small fund relative in size, but to be able to have such a, a prolific network of people we can reach out to. And then the other leg of that stool was as we start thinking about financials, I talked about bankers earlier and I didn't mean this individual in that context because he's just just incredible. There's a gentleman by the name of Imran Khan, not the prime minister or the famous cricketer or any of those folks, but Imran Khan, the individual that had a thesis at Credit Suisse as an investment banker that Chinese companies needed access to the capital markets in the U.S. So he found this little company called Alibaba, and he helped them get public on the New York Stock Exchange. That was probably his highest profile IPO, but he did a lot more. And then I jokingly say, and then he decided to get a real job. (laughs) And that real job was partnering with a 20-something Evan Spiegel and being the adult in the room when Snap was going through a transformation of saying, hey, I'm not going to sell to Facebook for $3 billion. I'm going to go on and build a real business. Part of building that real business was picking up the phone and calling Imran Khan and saying, I need you to come in as chief strategy officer. So I forged a relationship with Imran and forget not knowing him. He, we've known each other for over 10 years. And Imran's really unique in that he's a valuation savant where he can talk about macro economic issues, but also dive micro into specific industries. And he can talk valuations. And having sat next to Evan Spiegel and having worked alongside Joe Side, Alibaba, and some of these other guys when he was getting companies public, he's really unique to be able to bring in the room and say, here's how we think about valuation at Flume. Because our overarching principle is we obviously have to deliver great returns for our investors. And I couldn't think of a better person in the room to help Scott and I think through the valuations of companies in Emron. So he's he's our third partner in the in in the business, and we're really blessed to have him. Wow. I mean, you, you've built quite the team. I mean, you know, what I also appreciate we were talking before is, again, just on that, how different you are as a venture fund. You're going out there and looking for different kinds of business. So can you tell me a little bit more about the thesis and how it all kind of works together? Yeah. So simply put, people always ask, hey, what stage do you invest in? And I realize those are typical venture questions. So I try and be thoughtful as I respond. But it comes down to this. We see what success looks like in founders. So my overarching principle is finding great CEOs and great founders that are open to new ideas vulnerable enough to say, here's what I figured out and here's what I need to figure out to get to that next $500 million of value creation. And if they're willing to have that conversation with us, chances are we can match them up with somebody within our group, whether it's the LP group or the GP group I just mentioned, that can help them reach their full potential. And so whether that happens in a seed extension or whether that happens in a series D as we all wait anxiously for the IPO market to reopen, I'm less concerned about. I'm more concerned about finding high character founders that we think have what it takes to take this business to the next level. And in some cases, those founders are not the CEO. Those founders recognize that they need to bring a CEO in to help them get to that next level. And in some cases, we're convincing the founders to stay right in the chair that they're in, because even though they may have self-doubt, as we all do from time to time, they may be that right leader to take it. And I think when you hear that from a Scott McNeely, who sat on the board next to Jack Welsh at General Electric and Saul Nardelli and Dave Calhoun and some of these guys that went out and really did some really interesting things in business, I think it's an extra level of credibility. And I will tell you, Doug, to the downside here, one of the biggest surprises six months into this 
is just how arrogant some of the founders and some of these venture capitalists have pumped up founders to be and that it's not okay to be vulnerable or have issues or have, you know, things that you can openly discuss. And they just go on and on and keep raising at these crazy valuations. And 2021 was probably the height of this. And no one's there to gut check them or give them an honest moment of, hey, why don't you just be transparent with me about the fact that that moat you thought you created isn't as big as we thought when we invested. Yeah. And it's surprising to me. And I don't mean that to beat up on founders out there, but I do think if if you're a founder that thinks you've got it all figured out, I don't know, maybe there's a couple that come to mind, but my, my goodness, that's been a surprise to me, particularly when you offer our group to them relative to wanting to help. Yeah, you definitely have to continually reinvent yourself. And I I think it would have been helpful when I was a CEO to have people that could have addressed some of those things for me. You know, and I think that I've seen some venture funds go as far as like invest in the Hoffman process for some of their CEOs, which feels like a really deep dive into vulnerability, but it does feel like there are a lot of them that are just not that and probably as a result of playing the game or just lack of self-awareness. So, I mean, it sounds like really finding the right fit is most critical. I mean, it does sound like you're in the enterprise. I don't want to pigeonhole you guys because it sounds like you could probably do a lot, but it sounds like a lot of your experience is in enterprise. Is that a fair assessment or is it? Yeah, that's exactly right. So, I mean, we're focused on on the enterprise. You know, I'm happy to be helpful to people on the consumer side because obviously I spend a lot of time when you're when you're running Playboy, ironically, people think of it as a magazine. Well, what you should know is most of the revenue is derived from from Asia. Yeah. All the profit is derived from licensing the brand. But I was essentially running a Berkshire Hathaway, if you will, right? We had a hospitality and entertainment business, which for those of you who live in Las Vegas, maybe you remember the Palms and the relationship we had with George Maloof at the time who owned the Palms in the Playboy Club there. And then you also had this licensing business. And this licensing business was not just tchotchkes. It was actually, I, I told people when I got there, and I was nicknamed the chief revenue suppressor in the first board meeting because my big idea was we've got to terminate these 50 licensees we have because we're no longer going to sell air fresheners and mud flaps. We've got to build a lifestyle brand. And in order to do that, we've got to have an accessible line of quality products so that people want to associate with the brand. And you can't go to Spencer's Gifts and suggest you got a lifestyle brand. We've got to, we've got to go build that. So we partnered with Supreme and Bathing Ape and some of these fashion companies. But we also got into the spirits business and partnered with some some large spirits companies. And so in that role, you're exposed to a lot of different industries. And so people always ask me, how is your Rolodex using an an old-fashioned term? Why is it so robust? How the heck do you know this person? And the reason is, at Playboy, your head was on a swivel. You had to know everybody. And the shocking thing was, there were very few people that didn't want to take a meeting just psychologically to understand who's the person that would go from tech to to help run and turn around this company. So I met a lot of fascinating people along the way. I bet you did. I just, I had this vision of the Playboy mud flaps. It was cracking me up. I mean, and the air freshener. I love that. And then to turn that into a premium brand, I mean, it's amazing. And But this is all in service to this thing you mentioned before, we didn't really talk about it, is creating business value, I mean, through eliminating friction. I mean, so one of the most valuable things that you can do for an entrepreneur is make an introduction that leads to them getting a customer or a key employer or something like that. And so I think that's, and a lot of folks talk about that type of value, but I think one of the things that's coming loud and clear to me is you guys are 
uniquely positioned, or at least positioned in a very small segment of the world to be able to provide that type of value for the right type of founder. So how do you sift through all that? I mean, you've got a lot, I mean, there's a lot of people that would, I'm sure would be like, I'm that founder. Yeah. How do you go through and, and find those folks? Yeah, well, look, we're not perfect by any means, but here's sort of my rule of thumb, just because I remember reaching out when I was a 27-year-old at a startup company trying to get people's attention on the customer side and on the investment side and so forth. And so my rule of thumb is with the team is that we try our best to reply promptly, right? Yeah. So if you inbound us, we're going to do our best to get back to you. No is a frustrating answer, but you know, you'd be shocked to learn in venture capital, you have to say no a lot more than you say yes. And so I think in our first 90 days, I think we saw over 75 businesses. Hmm. Of those 75, we invested in two. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm not saying that's a go forward ratio, but I think that sort of paints a picture of it's hard out there. And particularly in the macro climate now of a venture, public or private, the markets have been hit pretty hard. Capital is scarce. I feel like it's a great time to start a fund, given where we are in the market cycle right now. There's a lot of people that raised in 21 that are needing some liquidity in their business. They're needing to fund their business. And uh, it's nice to be able to have the pick of the litter, if you will, relative to those businesses. The other thing I would say on outreach is that the best answer is yes. I get that when founders call. But what they don't realize is the second best answer is no. Absolutely. I say it all the time. And the worst answer is no response. Yeah. I want to make it our pledge, and we try very hard to do this, to make sure we don't let things fall through the cracks. I always try and say no, but here's somebody who could be helpful to you. Or no, you're not at the, here are the things we would need to see to be excited about your business. Or no, but here's a couple partnership ideas, and I'm happy to make those warm introductions. That's typically what I've known the character of my partners to be, and that's what we we strive for at Flim. Yeah, that's great. I, I know that you're based in Nevada. Obviously, there's a, a component where we haven't really talked about much, but we will, about kind of the give back to Nevada. But this isn't centered on Nevada. I mean, you're looking for the best founders in the country, around the world. Around the world. With some hope, I think, to bring them to Nevada. Maybe if it makes sense. Obviously, it has to make sense for their business. But is that in your, probably in your heart, maybe not necessarily in the thesis? or? Oh, I'm the biggest cheerleader for the state. <laughs> I think the group we've assembled have megaphones and a lot more influence than me as an individual, I think. Yeah, look, I mean, you guys did a great job. Let me just take a minute. I mean, when I first got here in 2011, Elon hadn't set up shop here. There was no Panasonic factory here. I love flying into Reno because you have a much more diverse audience of people coming in. You see young professionals wanting to move here. I think Vegas is, you know, COVID, if anything, has accelerated the need to diversify. I think you're seeing Vegas as a big data center and enterprise play now, or before it was a hospitality and entertainment center. And there's gaming tech, which is exciting. And we have a couple LPs that are well-regarded, in the, if not the top of their game in that world. But this is very decidedly about the enterprise. Yeah. And I realize that's less sex appeal than having run Playboy and some of the other things that I've done. But I think the enterprise is very transformative. And I think our state has the talent. We're essentially the back office of Silicon Valley right now. Yep. And I think if COVID taught us anything, it's that you can work 
from anywhere, but why not build a nucleus in a low-cost, pro-business environment, and I just can't think of a better state. And I realize I'm a homer, and I'm realizing that I exist for the fact that I love this state, and you know, I'm adopted to Nevada now. And I would just tell you, I couldn't see a business reason why people wouldn't want to relocate here. Yeah, well, I'm just going to anoint you as an economic development champion, or you get a badge as an economic developer now. But it is, it's a team sport, and we need everybody. And I think the fact that you and your partners have influence at the board level and just by your choices to be here speaks volumes. I mean, I, you know, I was doing work before Elon and actually that, you know, there was a lot of movement that happened before Tesla, but Tesla's movement to this area put us on a map that there was just no other way to get there other than having Elon do that. And it's been, it's never been the same since then. Yeah. And look, I think Tesla's obviously a big one to point out up here, but I also look to sort of the original folks that helped build some of the foundation of the business environment here. And I look to what Sierra Nevada Corporation does for those listening, not Ken Grossman down there in Chico, who I'm also good friends with, but the folks not brewing the beer, but actually helping protect our country and really rapidly developing the aerospace industry. And I think Fadi and Aaron Osmond deserve a lot of credit for what they've done in Reno Sparks area and what they're doing with Sierra Nevada Corp. I'm excited excited to see what the future holds there because I know they're big proponents of technology, tech enablement, but more importantly, the community at large. Absolutely. And the work that they're doing on campus with the Osmond Center and supporting the entrepreneurship program, I mean, it's helping fund and educate the next generation. So we've worked closely with them on a number of projects. So you absolutely. And you've got companies like Dragonfly Energy and Switch. And when I first started this, we would look at one exciting company and we'd like put that up as a poster child. And now there are so many different things. It just makes me really happy because, again, I had this thesis that we could be a tech-enabled community or a center for technology, and everybody thought it was crazy. But it turns out not so much. What's happening? And I think enterprise is next. And I think you know Ridgeline is going to be a big part of that. But I'm hoping... As onshoring continues, I think we will continue to see kind of that financial services and things like that grow in this community, which will be really exciting. And I'd love to see more enterprise deals. I think Ridgeline will be the first of hopefully many to come. Yeah, they're an exciting company, and I would never bet against Dave Duffield. He's a wonderful leader. He's assembled a great team. They're in the first inning of a really fun journey, and uh, they're going to be a high-growth company to watch for many years to come. Yeah, for sure. So we talked a little bit about your profits and reinvesting in the ecosystem. I mean, what are some of your thoughts on what can be done here? I mean, what do you want to do with that? Yeah, look, I mean, off-air, we were talking about individuals that are leaving the community and moving to New York or L.A. or Chicago. And look, I, I did the same thing. You know, Chicago is where I went and then ended up in New York and L.A. But, you know, I look at that and I say there's no reason to leave, right? This is a completely different world. There's no reason to have to leave this state. And it's incumbent upon us and all the entrepreneurs listening to make this a pro-business state. I appreciate the governor and his office and what you guys do, but it's not a government issue, right? It's a private sector issue of people wanting to come here and contribute and build a thriving community for many years to come. I want my daughters to have the option to get a great career right here in Nevada and not have to go to a San Francisco or a New York City to go do that. And I think right now we're still losing a lot of people. I think what Brian's done at UNR is impressive. I think what UNR has done as a school, it's gotten a lot better even since 2011 when I was here. And it is an incredible university that should have more things like the Osmond School of Entrepreneurship and some other things coming out of it. I'm not as interested in names on buildings as I am going and meeting with prospective students that want to come out and learn about 
in this case, venture capital or enterprise technology, and help find them opportunities. And so we'll institutionalize that a bit, but I'd say most of it is us all getting going and actually doing the work. I mean, words are wonderful and, and donations are wonderful to various institutions and so forth, but we actually have to go show successful businesses in the state so that other successful businesses will want to come be a part of it. Absolutely. And if you can just bring one big enterprise software company a year, you'll be my hero. I mean, it'd be great. (laughs) (laughs) The great thing is we're at this place where we're all kind of aligned. And I agree with you that there's a, you know, private, the private industry has to take a big part of this. I think, you know, what I've noticed about the role of government in some of these is there can be an initial catalyst to bridge some of those gaps. But ultimately, I mean, we were talking about this at lunch today, the need for a venture studio. I don't think that's a good role for government, honestly. I think the economics of that should pay for itself. And so we just have to find the right time. So it's great that the private sector is coming on board with that, I guess. That's my point, is we can all be aligned in that same direction, which I'm very excited about. I know that you have to have some exits before that comes together, but we'll be in close communication as that continues. And and I just appreciate your commitment to Nevada. I mean, you're going to be on an upcoming venture panel at the Reno Startup Week on September 27th. So that would be a great opportunity for other people to come meet you and learn about your thinking. You're going to be up there with a couple other venture capitalists. We're talking about all sorts of interesting things, I'm sure. I mean, just appreciate, you know, the things that you're doing broadly for the state. Well, thank you. I'm excited to participate in that and just meet a lot of more entrepreneurs around the state and people that share a passion for the state. And most importantly, as you pointed out earlier, we got to go get some big wins. And the nice thing is deal flow and access to deals, you know, when you have an LP base like Flume does, is unique. Deal sourcing is not an inhibitor at all. We're actually finding a lot of really great, interesting deals. And I'm looking forward to meeting some of the entrepreneurs that have visions of building the next Sun Microsystems or the next Ridgeline or the next Workday or whatever it is they have their heart set on and seeing if we can be helpful along the way. Yeah. Given your wealth and breadth of experience, I mean, what are some of the key things that you would leave with entrepreneurs? I mean, what are some of the key things you'd want to, like, if you if you wanted to give your daughters, like, two or three things about why it'd be an entrepreneur or, I don't know, any founder you saw, what, what would those be? You know, it's interesting. I just had a CEO of a publicly traded company come stay at my house, and I do that quite intentionally. And I, candidly, I stole it from McNeely. McNeely used to always have Larry Ellison come over and talk to his kids or... You know, he recently had Sam Brown come and tell his story. He was a candidate for U.S. Senate just so we could get a sense for his incredible story as a military veteran or or other individuals. And so I've sort of committed my life that anytime somebody's coming up to the area, I want them to stay at my house. And it, they're very appreciative, but, you know, it's somewhat selfish in that I want my kids to meet them. Yeah. And I want my kids to hear their story. Yeah. I'll share with you, the, the gentleman I just had stay at my house grew up on a wheat farm yeah. in Montana. And shared his story of coming from humble roots. Even for my nine-year-old daughter, it was something that I could see clicking with her and registering with her. So, look, my advice to my kids is I'm trying to expose them to a lot of great, the people that have done it the right way, right? But it's the same advice I give to entrepreneurs. Be humble. Be kind. Be open-minded. You don't have it figured out. If you want to play that and and you want to go and say, I've got everything figured out, we're probably not the right group to sit down and talk to you. But I think humility goes a long way. There's a sense of humble confidence, and I realize that probably sounds awkward to say, but I'm a firm believer in it. You have to have a vision, and you have to have clarity of thought on that vision, and you have to be able to go execute it and have the drive to go do it. But it's okay along the way to ask for help. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And you know, it's funny. I was just talking to my son. He's in the first entrepreneurial program in the middle school. So we got Nifty to come in and teach entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. And my first statement to him was, don't get too wedded to your idea. You can have confidence, but then go test it and seek feedback. And I think that speaks to that being humble. I mean, some of my worst days at Edon were when someone had put their life savings into this thing that they've fallen in love with, but no one else really wants it. And those are heartbreaking, right? So to be able to have that humble confidence, I think, is, is spot on. That's beautiful advice. Thanks. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate your time. I'm really excited about what you and your partners at Flume are going to do. If someone wants to reach out, is there a way for them to just go to your website or learn more about Flume? Yeah, it's just flume.ventures, and there's a contact section there, and so somebody from our team will get back to you if you want to reach us that way. I'm also on LinkedIn, as long as you're not trying to sell me something. I'm pretty open-minded to spending time with folks that generally have an interest in, in learning and growing, and I usually learn something out of those conversations as well, so super happy to be helpful on the way. Yeah, well, thank you so much for your time, and I look forward to working with you closely as we make Nevada the best state for entrepreneurs. Yeah, thanks for all you guys are doing. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. 